Um, I want you to invite your I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation 14. Now, in studying this passage, I've learned a new word. It's really a, a word that I, I should have heard before, that I probably heard before, but sort of passed over. Like a lot of times, right, you're reading along, you see a word, you sort of pass over, you kind of sort of know what it, what it means. Um, but it's um, a word I should have known. But this time what I did is I, I looked up that word when I saw it. Now, here's the word. Proleptic. Proleptic. Ryan, you got you got, you got it. No, yes. <laughs> proleptic. Anyone know what proleptic means? All right. Well, I'm I'm one week I'm one week further along than you are. So, proleptic. It it, it means literally. It means a, a coming before. Pro before, and then lepsis, like from uh, Lambano, like to capture or to capture before something before. And, and, and thus it means like antecedent or previous, with, with a level of, of anticipation. So it's anticipative, if you will. Anticipating something. In a phrase, proleptic means the representation of a future act as if presently accomplished. Revelation, right? The book of Revelation. A future act as if presently accomplished. See, the Red Book of Revelation is proleptic. John sees the future as if it was accomplished. The visions that he sees, really, that he explains, are really all in the past. He says, I saw this, and everything, and this happened, and this happened. But they're all proleptic, anticipating something in the future. You might say prophetic. Um, but proleptic more has to do with maybe literature or anticipating something. So, like, Revelation 14 is proleptic because it anticipates a future event within Revelation that particularly is not there. Like, like per, particularly, Revelation 14 speaks about the hour, the final hour of judgment, which really doesn't take place till the end of Revelation. And there are things that need to take place even before um, the end. So it's sort of like it's, it's, a, it's a preview, it's a snapshot of what's going to take place in the future. And you can see that the best in chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. When John writes this, he says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, having an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Really, this sets the framework of chapter 14 is the hour of his judgment has come, that time in human history when everyone will stand before the Lord to give an account for his life, like we read today, Brian did, in, in Matthew chapter 25. And the message he proclaims here is the eternal gospel, that which has always been true, that which always will be true. Fear God and give him glory. In other words, throw yourself at the mercy of God. It's the message here. It's your only hope to escape judgment. It's coming your way. And the good news is that there is hope. He'll receive you into his care if you but seek to give him glory. Now, the announcement here comes at the hour of the judgment of God, which really only comes later in the book of Revelation. Um, the next time frame you see in chapter 14, verse 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This anticipates chapter 17 and 18, in which Babylon actually falls. 
And at the end of, of chapter 14, we see the reaping of the earth, some to life and some to destruction. Yet we see in Revelation 15 that there's some events that have to take place before these things take place. Look at verse, chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Right? In other words, for the wrath of God to finish... These bold judgments need to come, but chapter 14 is talking about things already before. It's proleptic, it's the word. If you think about it a bit, we've seen this in Revelation several other places. Chapter 11, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. That's chapter 11, but really, really talking about the end. Or the seals and the trumpets seem to take us right up to the judgment of God. Right? So the seals almost do, and, and the trumpets almost do, and it just shows that the book of Revelation is not just this straight timeline, but comes with different angles and different phases all over the place. That's why it's best not to try to get caught up in a time frame of Revelation, as if you can figure it all out. What is best is to enjoy the pictures that God has given us to enjoy and to learn and to, to grow and to know from. Well, this morning, our our passage is proleptic. It's anticipating something later in the book. The title of my message comes straight from verse 7. The hour of his judgment has come. I want to read all of chapter 14 to put it in our minds as we then tear apart this passage. Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. And then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made the heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of a lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. 
Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one with the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. The blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Some somber, somber things today as we think about the hour of his judgment has come. Well, let's look at the first scene. This really the, breaks up into three different scenes, if you will. Uh, the first scene is my first point. I'm simply calling it first fruits, coming from verse 4, where it even speaks about these are the first fruits redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and for the Lamb. The sense of redemption here is that they've finally been redeemed with God forever, singing his praises. And that's, in fact, where verse 3 puts them in heaven before the throne of God. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. It's similar to what we heard in chapter 5. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves, right? So let's go back to chapter 1, to verse 1, rather. We set the scene. We, we read in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood a lamb, stood the lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. We've seen 144,000 mentioned before. Anyone remember where? Chapter Seven. Chapter 7, we saw the multitude being sealed on their foreheads. In chapter 7, verse 3, we read that. And, and we're not told much about the seal. But here we're, we're told that the, the name of the Lamb and of the Father are written on their foreheads. Right Here's, here's a picture of what you might, might look at. Right? The name of Jesus and Yahweh just right there on the foreheads. That's what John saw. And again, like much of Revelation, this is what John saw. He saw names on foreheads of God and of the Lamb. This comes, of course, directly from chapter 13, right, where we saw people marked on the right hands, on their foreheads, the mark of the beast. But here's the real mark. It's the mark of the Lamb, and it's the mark of, of God. It's the true ownership of really who owns you. Now, like much of Revelation, I don't think this is literal. We won't see people in, in heaven, right, with, with things on their foreheads, right? But it's what John saw, but it represents who is sealed and protected by the Lord and who is following the beast. These 144,000 are identified as standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. That's a picture of victory, if you will. Standing there. Like if you trace through biblical history, you discover Jesus is sitting on the throne. Psalm 110 says it this way. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus sitting and waiting. And the significance of him standing now is that he's ready to claim his victory. His, his enemies are placed at his footstool. And Psalm 110 verse 2 continues. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Zion is the city of God. It's the, the place of victory. And, and again, I don't think this is the earthly Zion. Because we see these 144,000 redeemed and singing and praising God in the heavenly throne. Psalm 2 also speaks about his setting his king upon Mount Zion. 
I think it's his heavenly throne is, is where he is. In fact, even we see this in verse 2. And I heard a, a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the voice, the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Verse 2 tells us this loud, heavenly voice in heaven. Verse 3 tells us of the singing voices of these 144,000. And they were singing this new song before the throne of God. I believe it's heaven. It's the heavenly Zion where all of the redeemed will be before the Lord singing his praise, right? And there's a question about who these 144,000 are. In chapter 7, they are listed there clearly as um, people from the tribe of Israel. And yet we know from Revelation just the symbolism there. It might be Israelites. It might be that. Or it might be all the ransomed people of God, 144,000, a big number. Could be that. But this does bring us back to Revelation chapter 5. We see the same living creatures. We see the same elders. We see the the same throne of God. And if we, we look there, they're saying this. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Same scene. Before the throne. The elders, the four living creatures. This time the 144,000 are joining them. Now here in Revelation 14, also like in Revelation 5, we see this new song that's being sung. Now I don't think this is the same song as, as Revelation chapter 5. Right? Because it's a new song. Revelation 5 is probably a different song than, than this song. I think it's appropriate that we sang a song today that was written 2022. A song written today, 2018. And the other songs, I don't know when they were written. I, I, was, I was looking in the hymnal, Ryan. I couldn't find when they were written. But they were written long ago. For the beauty of the earth. And, and um, what else? All hail the power of Jesus' name. These are traditional hymns, which are good for us to sing old songs. But it's good for us to sing new songs as well. I know there are churches that pride themselves on just singing the old songs. Let's sing the new songs as well. And I do believe that though I don't know what song this is, I do believe that the subject of these psalms are the same. The, the subject of the psalm here in, um, in Revelation 5 is redemption. What Christ has done. And that's why it's a new song, right? Because Jesus is bringing in a new phase of, of everything. He died. He brought in the new covenant. There's a new song in that. Jesus redeeming his people by his blood, bringing them before God. Magnify him before his throne in all his glory. And I think that the subject matter of the song here in Revelation 14 is is the same. The redemption of God. The redemption uh, given to us in Jesus. And I say this because of how he describes uh, the song itself. Uh, Look at the end of verse 3. It says this. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. The picture that John sees is, is that there are some who get that song and some who don't. You know what? I, I think it's a bit like jazz. Okay? Improvisation, improvisation, feeling, and style. In fact, I've heard someone say that jazz music, if you have to ask what jazz is, You'll never know what jazz is. Meaning it needs to be experienced, right? It needs to be moved. Like you need to like, catch it. 
And I think that's the picture here. No one could learn the song except the redeemed from the earth. And it's not about musical abilities. It's about the soul. Only the redeemed get the songs of the redeemed. It's what we do here at Rock Valley Bible Church every Sunday. It's why what we do here is foolishness to the world. I was talking to someone recently, a, a pastor's wife, and she talked about sharing with someone in her community, and they, and, uh, they just kind of says, I, a neighbor maybe, I forget what it was, and I said, why do you have to go to church on Sunday? It's like, that's not it. That person hadn't learned the song, that person can't learn the song. Because it's not why we have to go to church on Sunday, it's that we get to go to church on Sunday. Oh, but you're missing out on life. You can sleep in or go golfing or fishing. You can make trips every weekend. But we get to come here because we know the song of the redeemed. We know the song of the Lamb. And this isn't about technical abilities. Although John may say, there's a, there's a deadness, right? There's a, Jesus, Jesus talks about, and the Bible talks about, people are dead to sin. They don't, they don't understand. They don't receive the things of the Spirit of God. But for those who are enlightened who know the song of the redeemed, they know and they sing. And I just say this, if you ask to ask what the songs of redemption are, you can't learn to sing the songs of redemption. Well, look at how these redeemed are described here in verses 4 and 5. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They've been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Here's a picture of purity. Uh, I don't think it's a literal picture. These 144,000 are only celibate men who've never married I think it's in line with the whole Old Testament, right? When God used to describe Israel and his unfaithful people, he often describes them as going after prostitutes, which we'll see in chapter 17 of Revelation. And the picture of Babylon is that great prostitute to which the nations flee. But here in Revelation 14, the contrast, the redeemed, don't go after the harlotry of Babylon. They're virgins, right? Just like the bride of Christ. This is the church, if you will. The pure, spotless bride of Christ. How the, how the New Testament describes the church. This spotless bride that will be with Jesus someday. Proleptically anticipating Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. These redeemed are the pure ones made pure by the blood of Christ to be sure, but made blameless through Him to be sure. Yet the redeemed ones are the faithful ones. I love verse 4. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These are the ones of God's mark on their forehead. They've been redeemed from the earth, they've been found blameless, and they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. What a great picture of salvation that is, right? We just follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Great point of application here too, right? Are you following the Lamb? Do you follow the Lamb wherever He goes? Is your life characterized by obedience to Christ? Obedience to Christ is the characteristic of the redeemed. John said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? Love for God brings forth obedience to God. As these people follow the Lamb wherever He goes, it's really that simple. They're following Him because they love Him. Ultimately, those who will be redeemed by Christ are the pure ones following after Him. They're following the Lamb wherever He goes. These are the first fruits. And now we see, second, the angelic warnings. Or some of the seriousness of the hour as judgment has come, become, become, comes in. That, that first vision there was, was great and glorious, right? Thinking about, thinking about the church, thinking about this, this multitude there praising God right along with the, the four living creatures and the 24 elders right there before the throne of God. That's wonderful. Now we have some more serious things. Three warnings. 
in these verses. First warning comes in verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue, language and people. The angel here literally flying in mid-heaven. The ESV gets it exactly right, right? Flying in mid-heaven is not way up in heaven where we on earth maybe can't see, but it's, it's coming down in the sky directly overhead for all to hear. And he says with this loud voice, this eternal gospel, this gospel that's always been proclaimed, this gospel that always will be proclaimed, and here's the content of the gospel. You say, what's the gospel? Here it is. Fear God and give Him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Isn't it interesting here that Jesus isn't listed here in the, the gospel? Though it's more assumed than anything else. But this is, this is what it was, was preached to the gospel. Old Testament, New Testament, this is what it is. Fear God and give him glory. Now at this point in the book of Revelation, we know that God is the one who's going to win. It's the lamb was on the winning side. He's standing on Mount Zion, ready to take his kingdom. He'll defeat the beast of Revelation 13. He'll defeat the dragon of Revelation 12. He'll judge the peoples. So fear him and give glory to him and bow to the creator. Bow to him who made heaven and earth. Plead mercy. And of course, with Revelation, the blood of Christ is all over that. Please plead his mercy, the blood of Jesus. And here's the urgency of the message, right? The hour of his judgment has come. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, in this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come? Sort of what we, we see here. We see the fulfillment here, if nothing else. That, that where we as people never got to, at least the angel does. Speaks to everyone directly overhead. No one from all of creation will miss this message. It will be heard by all who dwell on the earth. Every nation and tribe and language and people. And Jesus said, when this gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed to the whole world, then the end will come. And that's what we see here. The end has come. It's the hour of his judgment has come. Now, it's not to say we don't need to make any efforts to bring the gospel to the end of the earth because the angel's going to do it in the future. But understanding apocalyptic literature it, may, literature, it may well be that this angel flying in mid-heaven actually is symbolic of us going out and spreading the gospel to all the ends of the earth. It may be, I don't know. But at some point, right, when the gospel goes to everyone, at this point in history, the end comes. But here's the gospel. Here's, the gospel means good news. And the good news is this. Even at the hour of judgment, there's still opportunity for repentance Right up to the moment, the hour, the day of judgment. The death row inmate, whose guys appeal to the Supreme Court, just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Right? That, that appeal works, even up to the last day of a judgment. And though the angel doesn't say it again, right? I think the implication is clear about cleanse the blood of Christ, because that's what Revelation speaks about. And the implication is clear about repentance. Right? If you fear God and give him glory, it's repentance. You're going to turn from your own. You'll, you'll fear him. And the good news is this, is if you do, you won't face the devastating effects of judgments. Where the bowls poured out in Revelation 15 or the judgment against Babylon in Revelation 17 and, and 18, symbolic of the world systems. It, it means there's an opportunity to repent even for them. It means there's an opportunity for us. The hour of judgment hasn't come. In all likelihood, we'll live another 12 hours today. 
13 hours. It's 11 o'clock straight up almost. You may not face judgment. But on that day, even the day of that hour of the judgment, you can plead to God, you can fear Him, give Him glory, give of the creator of the world, and still be reconciled to God. And the sorry thing is, though, that, that there are many who don't repent. Lest you think, oh, I'll just live my life how I want to now, and then come the end of the world, that's when I'll repent. Look at chapter 16, verse 8. This is talking about the, the bold judgments of, of when they come. The, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent as to give him glory. People are so hardened in their sin that even in the outpouring of God's wrath, which they are suffering at that very moment, and they know it's from God, they blaspheme God, they hate God, and they do not repent. And we see the same thing with the fifth angel, the fifth bowl in verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. The people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven, for their pain and sores, they did not repent of their deeds. So don't delay repentance. That is foolish. Delaying repentance merely hardens the heart so that when it comes to the day of judgment and wrath being poured out, the heart is still hard there in hatred towards God. Yet, the opportunity is still there for repentance. All right, let's move on to our next angelic warning. This comes in verse 8. Another angel, a A second angel followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She made all nations drink the wine of their passion of her sexual immorality. I trust you see this is proleptic. It anticipates the ultimate fall of Babylon, chapter 17 and 18. I also trust you see the metaphor being used here. It's the metaphor of a drunken prostitute. The metaphor is one who lives for his own pleasures. So it symbolizes the sin of the world, right? A pursuit of pleasure, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And this is what Babylon does. This is what the world does. Just pursues the world in the lust of the pleasures. And all this is what God condemns. And we'll see that in the future. You can see that even in in Revelation 18 and verse 2. It says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Echoing here the the same mantra that fallen, fallen is Babylon. We'll see that later. We don't need to spend much time now. Verse 9. And another angel. Let's count them up. We got three angels now. Third angelic warning comes in verses 9 through 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead and on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. The image here is, is not of Babylon. To be explained later, it's the image of the beast backwards. Chapter 13, worshiping the beast in his image will bring wrath upon you. You Notice how the worship of the beast here is practically synonymous with receiving the mark of the beast. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark, like those two things go together. You don't worship the beast without receiving the mark. You don't receive the mark without worshiping the beast. Worshiping the beast is symbolic and evidence of the mark. And your mark will be the target of God's wrath. When God pulls back his arrow, right, he looks for the mark, he looks for those worshiping the beast, and the wrath comes. Verse 10, note how bad the wrath is. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured 
full strength into the cup of his anger and he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of a lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name this is the end of those who rebel against the Lord full strength of the cup of God's wrath We have various degrees of drinks in our day. We have tea. Sometimes the tea is weak and sometimes it's strong. We have coffee and sometimes it's weak and sometimes it's strong. We have lemonade. Sometimes it's weak and sometimes strong. One of the things I like to drink at home is Gatorade and I like it weak. I like my orange juice weak. But when it comes to the final wrath of God, it's 200 proof. It's full out wrath of God. Full strength. And John describes his torment as awful and forever awful fire and sulfur reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah Genesis 19:24 which was destroyed by fire and sulfur if you ever been to Yellowstone or a geyser you just know the putrid smell coming up the sulfuric smell it's awful and it is forever its torment is forever and ever no rest day or night upon those who worship the beast now, there are many of those who are offended by this. I understand that. Many who turn away from the gospel because of this. I understand that. People say they can't reconcile a God of love can do things to people. I admit, it's difficult to comprehend. How can human sin be so awful that it receives torment forever and ever without any respite? I just hear a few things I want you to consider. First of all, we measure sins in accordance with the one against whom the sin was committed. For instance, a speeding offense is different than a murder. Speeding offense, you're just endangering people in general. A murder, you've killed someone. A sin against an innocent, defenseless child is worse than a consenting adult. And sin against an infinitely holy God deserves infinite punishment. And since all sin, as David says, against you, you only have a sin, even with Bathsheba, Since all sin is against an infinitely holy God, all sin deserves infinite punishment. That's one thing I'd have you consider. It's a theological consideration. Second consideration, without judgment, there's no salvation. If God didn't punish sin, why did Christ die? He died in vain. If God's just merely going to look over sin, there's no reason for Christ to die. And if God wasn't judged, if God didn't judge the wicked, what are you saved from? There's no salvation without judgment. Salvation always comes through judgment. A great picture of that would be the people of Israel saved from Egypt. How were they saved from Egypt? Judgment upon the Egyptians with the plagues. God saves them out of that by judging. Uh, Third idea. Regarding these things, you can embrace the scriptures or you can embrace your own ideas. If your idea of the love of God is such that it counts cannot account for such punishment you have a different God than the Bible yes it says God is love but God is also wrathful and he's angry with sin he also brings wrath upon those who rebel against him the Bible's clear about this doctrine of retribution Jesus taught it, Paul taught it and you can either think your own ideas and think you're so smart or realize the Bible's a lot more complex than you think and don't let the love of God just shatter over so everything that you can't understand the wrath of God passages 
Just realize that God holds those two things right. And the love for us saves us and delivers us by pouring out his wrath upon unbelievers. I'd encourage you simply to bow to the teaching of Scripture, not your own ideas. And fourth, let me just say, you can escape the torment. I find it so ironic. People say, oh, I can't stand that teaching, so I'm going to like, reject it and believe what I want to believe. And they subject themselves to that. But what I'm saying here is that you can escape from that. Remember the eternal gospel, fear God and give him glory, and none of that wrath comes upon you. You can escape it today by embracing it, but realize that in Jesus, he's hidden us from the wrath of God that is coming true even unto the moment of salvation. God holds out that, op- that moment of judgment, rather. God holds out that opportunity for salvation to all that would repent. As I went over in the, ju- the bold judgments, you don't see people pleading for mercy when God is finally pouring out the wrath upon them. They're not. They're so hardened against him that they don't want anything to do with him. It's the hardness of the human heart. Well, those are some thoughts about these verses about God's wrath being poured out full strength. One last comment regarding this third angelic message I need to comment on in verse 10 because it's, it's mind-shattering. One of the best things to do in your Bible study is read a passage of Scripture and say, what's surprising? It's where you're going you're gonna to pull out your, your greatest gems where you see something you just say, oh, that's a little, that's not what I, how does that work? And here it is. Verse 10. And he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, you may have heard this, and I think it's right and true. We often think of hell as separation from God. And indeed it is, as Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, 9. God will inflict vengeance on those who do not know the Lord Jesus, know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That if you don't know God and you don't obey the gospel, this is what's going to come upon you. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And yet here... We see those being punished forever and ever will suffer in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. How do you reconcile these two things? Well, I'm not exactly sure. But in some regard, right, the angels and the Lamb are going to be observing this punishment. But they're not going to observe it forever because... I know that they will be, Jesus will be on his throne, ruling and reigning, and the angels around him worshiping. That's where Jesus is going to be for eternity. But there's a sense that Jesus and the angels will be fully aware of the suffering of sinners in hell forever. In some regards, I think it's because the world mocks Jesus in their sin. The angels understand this far more than we do. And Jesus will mock the world in punishment, and the angels will see it as well. Now, notice here there's no mention of the redeemed or the 144,000 here seeing this torment. Indeed, the Revelation 21.4, the, the redeemed will experience no more sadness or grief or sorrow. But it's the angels and the Lord who will know and see that. So it's not really away from the presence of God as God. No, there's going to be this constant reminder. You mocked me. I was on the cross. Oh, he saved others. Let him save himself. Jesus would be able to mock them in that day. And they will not repent. They'll, they'll continue to fight. So what should we do with all this? I think verse 12 gives us some counsel. We should keep the faith. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and of faith 
and their faith in Jesus. This is the same as in chapter 13, verse 10. Here's a call for the endurance of the faith of the saints. This is the call of the book of Revelation. Keep trusting the Lord. Keep following Jesus. Keep obeying his commandments. It's worth it, right? You see all this destruction, and the only way out of it is to, is to follow Jesus and trust in him and obey him and submit to him and be on his side, not on the devil's side, not on his wrathful side. And this is the message of Revelation, right? Struggling through persecution. Is it going to be worth it to remain faithful even when all these persecutions of the Roman Empire are coming upon me? Is it? Yes, it is. It's worth it. I picture a day in eternity sometime when we're in heaven together. Rock Valley Bible Church reunion, right? 25, 22, right? Whatever, some year out in the future. And uh, we're all together. And... Uh, you have an opportunity to tell me. So, Pastor Steve, it was worth it. Because I'm telling you today, it's worth it. Let's endure. Let's keep the commandments of God. Let's keep our faith in Jesus. Let's endure. And then a blessing comes in verse 13. It's kind of another application. <clears throat> Realize the blessing of this. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And then the response seemingly antiphony comes back. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. The blessing here comes from those who are dying in the Lord, right? The, those who are trusting in the Lord and dying. And, and particularly here, it's the hour of judgment, right? Things are, things are coming to pass. Maybe the judgment is bringing inflictions upon them. Maybe the beasts are coming and killing them. We, we don't exactly know. But it's a time of persecution. And he says, blessed are those who die from now on. Because you'll be one of those. Like the 144,000 who will be singing the new song with the elders and the four living creatures. Revelation 14 is about the judgment. It's, it's at hand and many will die that day. But if you're in the Lord, it's a blessing to die that day because you can rest from the labors. And then another surprising thing here comes. The Spirit says, blessed indeed, they may rest from their labors. We understand that, but their deeds follow after them. It's like, what are you talking about? Resting from your labors, right? Once you're dead, there's not a lot more you do. You've entered that eternal rest, which is a blessed state when you can be with the Lord. And certainly there are things to do, a way to serve the Lord in heaven. But it says the deeds that they did follow after them and come. You say, what's that about? Well, it could be Matthew chapter 25 that Brian talked about today. I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was in prison, you visited me. Those sorts of things. Like the deeds following after them, demonstrating that they are one who loves Christ and obeys his commandments. I mean, what it means they follow. Your deeds are going to follow you. It's probably the good deeds, the faithful deeds, perhaps even the martyrdom deeds of trusting in the Lord. All right. <clears throat> now we see your third scene. When we have seen three angels, lots of voices. We're going to see a couple more angels coming here. Calling this the final harvest. Verses 14 through 20, there are actually two harvests. The first harvest comes in verses 14 through 16, and the second comes 17 to 20. Let's look at the first harvest. Interesting things there. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, who could that be? Remember the story of the, the, the furry creature with beady eyes sitting in the eucalyptus, right? 
The answer is Jesus. This is Jesus coming on this white crowd. Like, like Revelation, or Daniel 7 speaks about this. He's coming in his glory. This is Jesus. Then we see another angel. This is angel number four, I think. And another angel came out of the temple, calling out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So Jesus, right, who sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. You say, wow, that's, what's this, this angel? Is this angel, like, commanding Jesus? As if Jesus, like, is below the angel? Like, how, how, does, how does that work? I don't think so. Remember when Jesus said, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only? Matthew twenty four thirty six. In this case, the angel, verse 15, came out of the temple. He was with God, the Father only. And, and the angel becomes the messenger to Jesus to go and reap the earth at this point. This is a time when he brings in the harvest. And then we're going to see, and I, there's no mention here, but I do believe this is the harvest of the righteous, where he's bringing the, the sheep, if you will, into his fold. He's taking everybody from the earth, presumably all those who are alive. He's just, he's just taking them up. Maybe it's rapture, right? Taking them up, being with Christ. And then we see the, the other harvest, which is clearly the harvest unto death. Then another angel, I count five, came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle, right, just like Jesus. And then another angel, that's number six, I count, came out from the altar. And the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, <clears throat> put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. The winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, 1,600 stadia. So the picture here is that all of us are seen like, like grapes. Right? Think of the movie Willy Wonka. Is it Veruca? Right? It says, I want to... A goose, is she the one, right? And I want it now. And, she, and then, um, right, she becomes a, a big egg. So what do the Oompa Loompas do? They're going to squish her out. And this final judgment, we're actually this angel reaping the unbelievers into the wrath of God. And then like grapes are squished out during a time of harvest when they want to squish out all that. They, they put them in the vat and they just start squishing down like this. And then what's flowing out is all the juice there. Blood flowing out is the picture that John sees. As high as a horse's bridle. And I'm not big into horses, but we're talking <clears throat> five feet, six feet, seven feet, whatever. That high as a horse's bridle. Enough for a horse to swim through. For 1,600 stadia. 1,600 stadia, about 184 miles. 1,600, again, numbers. Like people say, what is this? Well, People say four times four times. I know they start to figure out all, all this stuff. I have no idea. I think it's just big. I think the, the amount of blood here is just massive, 184 miles, which, by the way, is the, the length of Israel. 184 miles comes out this, this wrath of what Jesus, treading on the winepress of the wrath of God, such as the destruction and the death. You see a, a death scene anytime, <clears throat> a murder scene, blood probably everywhere. And here it is. We're talking blood everywhere because the wrath of God is coming. It's the winepress of his wrath to destroy all peoples. It's really the, the two harvests. 
And Jesus told these two harvests in Matthew chapter 13. I'll leave that to you for your study. In the parable about the, uh, the, the good seeds and the weeds. He said, let them go in the harvest. And then he even said that time we're going to send out two angels. One angel is going to reap into the barn and one's going to reap into the fire. He also said in Matthew chapter 13 about the dragnet. He says, one angel is going to reap into the, the, the good, into the storehouse, and the other, the fish are going to be separated, the good, the bad, the others are going to go away. Jesus told about the angels doing that. Here in Revelation, we see that Jesus is involved in that. Yet there's another angel involved in that. Listen, there's lots of mystery. But here's no mystery, right? At the end of time, people are going to be divided into two people. E- either, either you're coming to his presence or you get wiped away. And your blood flows in this giant river someplace, mixed and mingled with the blood of everyone else who refused to bow down to Jesus. Slaughter's bad. Again, I remind you, though, church family, you can escape with the eternal gospel. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and all that fills them. Let us be found fearing God and worshiping him. Yes? Let's pray. God, these things are written for us. Lots of symbolism and difficulty and time and numbers and people, and I may have got things wrong, but the message, God, is clear that there's a division here between those who are worshiping you, singing this new song of redemption, and those who still shake their fist at you and refuse to fear you and to refuse to give you glory and refuse to worship you. That's, that's the message of the gospel. There's hope in Jesus as we fear you. And I, I pray that God this day would find us all in this room worshiping Christ. If there's others, if the people here have not bowed the knee to Jesus, God, open their eyes today, right now. They might worship you. They might escape this horrible wrath of years that comes. But thank you that with salvation, judgment must come. And here's the judgment we see that salvation is, is being accomplished through that. Thank you that you're good and righteous and true and that this judgment will be perfect. There'll be no one left out, no one wanting to get in, repenting and not, not getting in. You bring together all your saints, those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, those who keep the commandments of Jesus, those who trust in Jesus, and may that be us, each and every one of us. God, that we might find a sheep on that last day and not as goats. Strengthen us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.